0: And here we go. Today, come with me to 1983. Our Decade Series continues as we examine the year where stars were born. Plural, stars were born. The launch pads, the roles that, that rocketed actors from from just guys in roles to superstars. Tom Cruise, Eddie Murphy, Michael Keaton, Matthew Broderick. We discuss all of the giant hits of 1983, including the wrap-up of some giant space saga and the return of a certain Jedi. Comic books were exploding. Marvel was just getting started. Walt Simonson arrives on Thor and Beta Ray Bill happens and shakes the comic book world, setting up one of the, if not the greatest run on Thor ever. Ever. Paul Smith arrives on the X Men and injects all new life, all new juice. What a great year! We get it started and kicked off on an all new episode of Observations. Hey, everybody! Welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for listening, and thank you if you have been buying. Or uh, consuming, collecting any of my comic book work or uh, associated merchandise over the last thirty-seven years. Comic books is and has been and always will be my my favorite uh, passion. My 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 really the love of my life. I'll be driving, you know, on the highway like I was this past weekend, and going, okay, let me see. Okay, so so it's family then comics oh okay okay god family comics is that the right answer um i'm always trying to uh measure exactly how deep this passion and love of comics that i have because i really i'm, I'm always either making a comic book but got my head in a comic book or like you nowadays looking to see how the comic book movies and streaming shows are doing in terms of h- how are they ranking how what what, what you know, what's the performance, where's the box office, where's the streaming data, because comic books and superheroes are everywhere. I first happened upon them when I was seven years old. I remember like it was yesterday, the spinner racks of my youth informed me uh, of my passion. They they, they were my, uh, you know, comics were my drug of choice and the spinner rack was my dealer. Wherever there was a spinner rack, I was ready to do business. I was ready to make that exchange. So we talk comic books. We talk comic books, superheroes, pop culture, all of it. How it's exploded across a global stage over these last very few years. I mean, twenty years goes by, you know, in in a in in a blink, in a heartbeat. Especially given that that I have been nursing this passion of mine for forty eight years, for forty eight years. But then, in the it's the last two decades that boom, the explosion across all media or the, the merchandise tripled, the the shelf space quadrupled at your big box store, your Target, your Walmart, your wherever. Um, I mean, just comic books and superheroes, and, and we do them up and we talk about them, how they inform, how they have informed, how they affect pop culture. We've been doing a series called Decades, the Decades. We always pick a new year. So somewhere in one of the decades, we grab a very significant year. The reason that we do this and, and today's is extremely resonant. Is to look at some of the maybe the questions and the challenges, or the successes that are going on right now, and then and then compare them uh, to to some of the successes of the past, and maybe find some of the origins, the seeds of what we're digging right now. Back then, today we are looking at the craziest. What a great year! What an incredible year! The year is nineteen eighty three. Please come along with me, please. Experience the joys, the highs, uh, and and really the giant uh, uh, tidal wave of stars that, that 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 came out of of 1983. This is the year that stars, plural, stars were born. Many stars in comics, in movies, in music, in TV. Stars were born, and, and one of the reasons that I was steered towards. 1983 specifically specifically was this past year excuse me this past weekend i am looking at daily variety one of the great you know hollywood trade magazines and it had a headline that says we used to treat movie stars we used to treat movie stars like they were gods hollywood grapples with loss of young star power this is written by brent lang for variety and uh said the hottest package at this year's con film festival because this is you know the con film film festival is going on right now and 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 many of you may have watched uh harrison ford debut his new indiana jones movie i believe it's dial of destiny is at it uh and, and 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 do the whole you know carpet and the big standing ovations and then we got the snap judgments and i'm seeing that movie regardless i don't care but then the next day it was followed by Martin Scorsese and his brand new, uh, his brand new movie, which is uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Is that it? I'm just pulling this out of my <laughs> out of my out of my memory. I'm, I'm scanning this. Come on, come on, please, please, mention this. Um, anyway, I I will, I will, I will tell you. That at the top of this paragraph, so again, this is coming from the Cannes Film Festival, this article in Daily Variety that says, we used to treat movie stars like they were gods. It says, the hottest package at this year's Cannes Film Festival stars a 76-year-old action star and is a reboot of a movie that first dazzled moviegoers in 1993. That's a time, in case you forgot, before TikTok or smartphones, Facebook or Amazon or any number of technological changes that have reshaped our world and the movie business along with them. And yet, cliffhanger two, with Sylvester Stallone, bravely summiting the mountains again, is seen as one of the most commercial scripts out there for buyers, hoping to make an adventure film that can traverse borders and bring crowds in. With a nod to the younger audiences who will be needed to turn up if the movie is going to replicate the original's blockbuster status, the producers tease that casting is currently underway for a presumably younger actor to share the screen with Sly. But who can that be? It then goes on and, you know, pontificates, and that's why we're here. Uh, <clears throat> it says that <clears throat> in, in regards to this question of, you know, who could, who could, who could be alongside uh, Sly Stallone, it says, <laughs> when it says, who could that be? It says, uh, over the last 10 years, we've done a really shitty job of creating a new generation of movie stars. Said one sales agent, doesn't say if they're representing the movie. It just says this is their commentary. You know, this is what they're saying about about how they how they view um, what's going on in regards to the nurturing of the young stars. It says a look at some of the projects <clears throat> on offer or premiering at cons seems to bolster that argument. There's breakout, an action thriller starring seventy five year old Arnold Schwarzenegger, directed by Expendables four filmmaker Scott Waugh. Lords of War, a 59-year-old Nicolas Cage returning to the role as an immoral arms dealer that he first played nearly two decades ago. And that's Samore, a rom-com with a 69-year-old John Travolta and the rivals of Mzia King, a crime story featuring 53-year-old Matthew McConaughey. In most cases, these actors have been famous, globally so, since the 70s or 80s. McConaughey, a relatively newbie, had to wait until 1996's A Time to Kill to make his mark says uh on thursday night the increasingly geriatric nature of the star system was on full display at con as the 80-year-old Harrison ford walked the carpet for the premiere of indiana jones and the dial of destiny for which he first donned the fedora in 1981's raiders of the lost war <clears throat> of the lost ark and is still well preserved enough to unabashedly doff his top i've been blessed with this body he says <laughs> i love that unabashedly doff his top so yes he takes he has a uh shirtless scene, shirtless scene that at least one reporter wanted to specifically ask him about which is where he then said you know i've just been blessed with this body uh <clears throat> ford gets an assist from those technological breakthroughs appearing 35 youngers 35 years younger in key scenes thanks to the magic of the de-aging cgi effects so why exactly and here's the point of the entire article boy there was that was a wind-up right So why hasn't there been a flowering of new A-listers to rival the Fords, the Schwarzeneggers, and the Stallones of yesteryear? Protagonist Pictures, that's a production company, COO, George Hamilton, points to the collapse of the DVD business in 2008, at the moment when Hollywood stopped stopped being able to reliably make movie stars. Nearly all the actors and actresses who are bankable now had successful films when DVD and video was still a huge force said Hamilton selling several films at the festival, including Midwinter Break with Leslie Mansville. You could see that as a dividing line shift in terms of older and newer generation. With the new generation, there's more divisions between success because you could have had the most watch, show, or film on a streamer, but there might be a whole swath of a society who might not subscribe and they are not part of that system yet. In 2008, just as DVD sales began its death spiral, the first Twilight movie debuted, and those franchises' next-gen star became the centerpiece of a market of market packages for years to come. Nearly all those packages ultimately fizzled in the marketplace. Today, only Robert Pattinson, 37, can carry a big-budget package to the gold lane on his name alone at, the, at a market like Cannes, and only because he, <clears throat> and only because of the combination of his box office credentials, The Batman, and critically acclaimed indie performances. Kristen Stewart has earned critical raves as Spencer, but has not been focused on tentpole adventures. Obviously, the Twilight franchise IP was the star back then, said director-producer Aaron Kaufman. The shift to promoting IP over stars may have sounded like a good idea because IP doesn't overdose, or an IP isn't going to get caught tweeting about Nazis. However, this shift has left the cupboard bare when it comes to the next generation of stars. So, I mean, before I got to the end of this article, I was I was looking, and you know, again, variety is a big deal. They get a lot of hits. They have a huge, prestigious place uh, in in the movie, television, music industry. So when they speak, people listen. People pay attention. And he says uh, there are much, much less people in the younger age bracket who are household names by virtue of way in which their films or TV have reached audiences because of streaming. So then they they discuss <clears throat> that uh, one agent said that he believes having long-term contracts as Tom Holland and Chris Hemsworth do with their Marvel movie uh, resumes, their, Mar- their Marvel movie characters, has limited their abil- ability to break out he says Ryan Gosling, this person says, has been inconsistent. The Great White Hope, Timothy Chalamet, uh, is 27, but had has had a giant hit with Dune, but he, they believe, is an untried commodity. Then he says Michael B. Jordan, his biggest hits are two IPs, Black Panther and Creed. So this is about uh, the, the, the stars breaking out of these roles rather than the roles defining them. So, Rob, what does this have to do with 1983? Well, we are going to dig in because, well, trust me, 1983 was when stars were born. These, these, literally the talents of, of every category, movie, comics, film, television, I mean, sorry, movies, comics, TV, and music are, uh, are going to show you, are going to showcase to you the birth of just so many different names. We're going to start with movies we started with this movie star article. This is going to take Taylor right into dovetailing to all these categories. But 1983 is an exciting, exciting year. And, and it, um it, it really goes to show you uh, how you're, you're going to look back and go, we really haven't had a, a situation, a, a, you know, a series of, movies and comic books where people broke out in 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 such a spectacular fashion and they didn't just break out they they stayed there they stayed there uh the obvious and uh and and the and the most uh the obvious and the most you know dominant movie of of that year was uh Star Wars: Return of the Jedi. Come on, everybody had to show up. Everybody had to show up, right? Everybody had to show up to see how this entire saga, you know, unfolded, wrapped up. They left us on a cliffhanger. Uh, Return of the Jedi is is the movie that dominated. Nineteen eighty three was was absolutely positively the big dog. It was a hundred million plus uh, above every every single film that was in its way uh beneath it there's just no there's literally just no no uh beating the impact that that return of the jedi had return of the jedi was just the again absolute number one runaway uh runaway dominant absolutely dominant force uh of the year and, and you're like, well, oh, there's no new stars in there. No, there wasn't. But you know, the role that had 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 really, you know, launched Harrison Ford and our psyche was actually wrapping up. And imagine some of these some of these superhero roles, when they wrap up, you go, Well, what's their next move? Will their next move be as big as 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 this one? Let's let's take, for instance, a movie we discussed recently in the last series of the decades, 1979. Let's take Christopher Reeve. We came to know him as a big, giant movie star in a big, giant, classic, uh, historical role. Superman. There's there's literally, especially at that time, no superhero bigger. Bigger than Batman, bigger than Spider-Man, bigger than everybody. 1978, 79's Superman. It was the number one movie of 1979. We got to know Christopher Reeve. Did Christopher Reeve ever have a role that was anywhere near as uh, successful as Superman? Unfortunately for him, he did not. That does not mean we didn't. We don't, you know, love him or value him less. But similarly, Han Solo, you know, is is a giant, you know, role that Harrison Ford embodied, and it's over at this point. It's over in in Return of the Jedi. You're saying goodbye to Harrison Ford, uh, who had become such a huge piece of the entire saga that the cliffhanger was uh, of empire strikes back the middle chapter uh, uh, of all of this hinged on you know will we see him again how will we see him again will he be alive so return of the jedi obviously goes to great lengths to solve this but when it says goodbye we're not sure that we're going to see harrison ford as han solo again but you know he already had indiana jones two years prior to that right after empire he's indiana jones so i guess he's got like a you know a golden parachute role right behind this one because we loved we loved Indiana Jones but again and this is the perfect uh point of what that article was saying think of all the Harrison Ford movies you've loved think of all the roles following Han Solo Han Solo didn't define Harrison Ford he did not become oh yeah that's the Han Solo guy he didn't even become that's the Indiana Jones guy he became you know Jack Ryan who who ascends to the presidency in, in in these uh you know Clancy Clancy uh novels Patriot games clear and present danger he uh you know famously kicks kicks somebody off his plane get off my plane okay Air Force one is one for the ages there is witness okay uh I, I mean you, you can see here it just Keeps going, especially in the '90s. Harrison Ford said, "Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll make that work. I'll make that work." So much more, so much more prolific uh, than than any of the actors uh, of his of, of his time in in defining roles. Now you are going to say Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is there. I am going to give you Tom Hanks. I am not going to argue. I am going to tell you that I believe history uh, will, will 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 reflect that Harrison Ford was possibly the most dominant, the most. Uh, the most, you know, prestigious and the most uh, successful actor uh, of of his age. And again, you, you just you just keep going through these roles, and and you can see. I mean, the only reason I watched Apple Shrinking, the only reason I came to love the show. And if you haven't seen Shrinking on Apple, it's, it's by a couple of the producers from Ted Lasso. You should. It's fantastic. It's it's literally. It's just all sorts of great. But uh, when, when you think about, um, I mean, I, I, I only turned in because I'm like, oh, Harrison Ford, he had time to do something else in between making, you know, uh, the, the new, you know, Indiana Jones. But here's the thing, I'm, I'm, I'm spending all this time on Harrison Ford really to, 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 to belabor a point, but you're going to see that he's, you know, right now we're waiting. Does Chris Hemsworth have another giant, you know, portfolio of characters and movies that we will sign on to? Does Chris Evans, you know, does some of these do so many of these guys who have become so defined by by these roles? But you look back and, you know, I haven't even mentioned the fact that we all fell in love with him as Deckard and Blade Runner. Okay. Not a hit movie at the time. Not a hit movie. Boy, did they try? They had the comic book adaptation. They got all the bells and whistles, all the you know, sci-fi magazines, huge promotions. Big buzz, but obviously in the years since, it it has elevated itself to just you know absolute classic status. So by the time Return of the Jedi is going away, he's got Indiana Jones, he's got Deckard Blade Runner in his pocket, but then, as I said, he does Witness. Then he does Presumed Innocent, which is a hit, uh, a a, a giant film that is actually ironically now being uh, turned into a... uh, A a TV show on 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 Apple that I believe is starring Jake Gyllenhaal reprising his role. Now, you know that that's a that's a big bold move because because Presumed Innocent was it was it was a hit movie where where Harrison Ford is playing an attorney at the thriller. Then we go into the Patriot Games, the Clancy era. Then you know again, I know you're yelling at me through there. What are you gonna say? The Fugitive. There, I said it. I said the Fugitive. Okay, the Fugitive, a remake of a really a cult classic television show. He and Tommy Lee Jones spin off into this giant blockbuster, you know, summer of 1993 clear and present danger. He revisits, he revisits Jack Ryan. He does. He, I mean, air force one 1997, but then come on, like don't act like six, six days and seven nights didn't top the charts. It did. Uh, As we, as we enter into the two thousands, you know, he gives you movies like Extraordinary Measures. He signs on, you know, to Cowboys and Aliens. And and, and we cannot, I, I'm telling you, I love uh, 2000's What Lies Beneath. This guy is just a giant movie star and continues to prove it again and again and again. He even pops his head into uh, The Expendables 3. He's in Age of Adeline. You know he comes back for Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Now he's he's kind of in the sec the the, the greatest hits, uh, you know era. But act like you didn't tune into nineteen twenty three the Yellowstone the Yellowstone prequel series because he was in it. Come on, I did, and boy did they they played with me. They played with me on that show. So Return of the Jedi is is is, is significant in that like we say goodbye to these characters. And I'm gonna just real quick. I drove to see Return of the Jedi with my buddy you know, Memorial Day weekend, 1983, now I'm 15 years old, not nine years old anymore, nine years old is when I encountered Star Wars, and then once again, the magic of Star Wars was just, it was like, it was something we were all addicted to, especially as kids, and I told you, I didn't want to be the cowboy, In in previous podcasts, all my friend, friends, man, when we went into like, we'd, we'd play in the neighborhood, and we'd role play, and we'd become these different characters, everybody fought over who's going to be Han Solo, and I'm just over here going, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm Luke Skywalker, and, and it's not like I had to fight any of my buddies to play Luke Luke Skywalker. They all wanted to be Han, but boy, the impact of Han Solo! I drive to see Return of the Jedi, and I'm going to be honest; I was a little disappointed. Now, the guys at my Extreme Studios there was always over sixty of of us at my Extreme Studios, and they really let me have it because my vitriol for this movie had had been going on for a better part of a of a decade. When when uh, when these guys at Extreme hit me. And, and so many of them, the Dan Frega's, the 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 Marat Michaels, so many of the guys who made up of a uh, uh, extremes powerhouse talent lineup that I was fortunate, you know, enough to employ and have under one roof making kick ass comics. These guys all revealed to me, Return of the Jedi is their first. It is their first Star Wars movie that they saw in theaters, and you go, wow. Like, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. Like So that was like a religious experience to them because then immediately now I'm thinking of my first experience seeing Star Wars. It happened to be the first one, but make no doubt they'd probably heard about it. They'd seen Star Wars and Empire on, on, on television at that time. And now they're six, they're seven, they're eight, whatever. And they're going to see all these characters come to life on the big screen in the magic, with the magic of the big screen, and it just blows them away. So they don't have the hatred of the Ewoks that i that i had they didn't have the disappointment that really we're, we're going to take down another dark death star like six years later this is what this built to, built to is that the emperor in all his greatness has given another death star and how'd that work because that that failed too um with magazines like i mentioned earlier starlog we had been teased that this was going to be a planet of the Wookiees they were going to go to Chewbacca's planet and 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 they lived in tree houses we already seen a glimpse of of that one of the two like redeeming parts of the Star Wars holiday special was seeing that the Wookiees lived in these giant you know tree houses so wait it's not Wookiees it's wait Ewoks what are Ewoks they're cutesy little animals and we've all heard the story that George wanted to skew younger and look it worked out for him he did the Ewoks went on to get their own cartoon on Saturday mornings. They got a ton of merchandise. They got spin-off movies. He took the Ewoks to the bank. I just wasn't in the mood in 1983 for Ewoks and as as, as I was turning 15 and I and, and I've talked about this and John Favreau himself I was like, "Oh, kindred spirit, same age, same situation." As we're getting older, we had seen Alien by now and Blade Runner and our appetites were getting whetted with the more r-rated more mature sci-fi stuff and so that's where my tastes were leaning and i didn't really want to go back and do like within the its own trilogy it was already doing a greatest hits it was already going back to the death star you know and, and and really repeating a fight that i had seen slightly better in my opinion uh in empire strikes back between between luke and darth and and here's the deal Having left Star Wars in 1977, I didn't expect a sequel. I didn't think there was going to be a sequel. I didn't know what a sequel was. I knew that there were series of James Bond movies, but I didn't really, like, we, we weren't in the sequel era yet. So seeing Star Wars and them walk off, walk off with their medals and be decorated and be celebrated and everyone cheer and that, you know, triumphant John Williams score ends the movie. You thought, this was the greatest adventure of my life. I don't think I'm ever going on an adventure with these characters again, but it is a perfect movie in that you can never make a sequel. Star Wars and it will still be a perfect movie you introduce you know the lost boy who's with the questionable destiny but the big heart follows his you know his uncle or in in the comics and the novels sometimes they called Uncle Ben they called Ben Kenobi Uncle Ben so they follow he follows Ben Kenobi on this incredible stretch uh, of, of, of crazy adventure all the way through the stars onto the Death Star finally becomes the pilot that he's dreamed of being, saves the galaxy, brings down the Death Star, trusts the Force. Oh, doesn't need a sequel. It got a sequel, okay? It got many more iterations. And along the way, the comic books and the novelizations that reached me before 1983, I was just totally like imagining something so much more adventuresome. So Return of the Jedi, saw it. After seeing 35 times in the theater, 37 times, Star Wars, seen Empire a couple times, Return of the Jedi, was a one and done. I saw it in the theater. I saw it opening weekend. It it you know got data downloaded. I would watch it again when it came on cable. But uh, but it was a one and done. And I recognize like I've just as much as much fun as I've I've had with this band of characters. Um, I, I was not as completely satisfied. But that did not stop Star Wars from electrifying all those kids who were seeing it for the first time and and made it their favorite movie. Because I mean these guys, you walk into a studio. Of young guys whose Return of the Jedi was their first film, and say you don't like it, and it and 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 you really kind of had all sorts of issues with it, and they will roar back on you. I've lived that. I've experienced it. It was a great experience. It taught me to give this movie the respect and you should too. It was the number one movie of nineteen eighty-three. So the the stars and those stars of Star Wars weren't the stars that I'm talking about when I'm when I'm talking about that summer where so many stars were born. Let's get to it. The rest of the top 10 reads number two, Tootsie. Number three, Flashdance, number four, Trading Places, Number Five, War Games, Number Six, Octopussy, Number Seven, Staying Alive, Number Eight, Risky Business, and Number Nine, Mr. Mom. Now here's the deal. Many of these stars that I'm just, you know, sharing with you. So you go, Trading Places, Eddie Murphy. We have to talk about that. We have to talk about Eddie Murphy. Breakout role. No, it's not his first movie, 48 hours. Was his first movie? It came out really just, you know, the year before. Eddie Murphy, breakout star in SNL, crashes into our existence with this monster, monster hit. War Games. Matthew Broderick. It's the first time I interacted with him. It's the first time I had really spent time with Matthew Broderick. And War Games was an just absolute romp. And 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 again, good enough to be the number fifth movie. Of 1983, go down to number eight. Risky business, not his first movie, but the star-making tour, the star-making turn for one. Mister, I want to call him Pete Maverick. Tom Cruise. Dun 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 dun. I mean, how many times have we seen that scene spoofed? uh it, it is a classic, and this is where Tom Cruise blew up, and everyone goes. Who's that guy? We had seen him in in Taps. We had seen him in The Outsiders, maybe some other stuff, but not like this, not in a breakthrough role, not commanding the screen. The number eight movie of the year, Tom Cruise, Risky Business, Mr. Mom is number nine. Michael Keaton blows up, been around, been lurking. Boom, this launches him. This launches him. Now, number 10 is National National Lampoon's uh, Vacation. Now, uh, I'm going to just go 11 and 12 or Superman 3 and then Eddie Murphy's other movie, uh, 48 Hours. Now, here's the deal. Again, as I said, uh, 48 Hours opened December 10th of 1982, but made enough money uh, to, to be the number 12 movie in 1983. It, it was a buddy cop, not even a buddy cop movie because he's he's kind of a you know criminal con man. And Nick Nolte and he team up in 48 hours and it took everybody by storm. 48 hours ultimately as the number 12 movie would make $78 million. It was made for a slightly bigger budget than Trading Places was. But going back to Trading Places, <clears throat> I can go to Flashdance and I, and, and I can tell you that Jennifer Beals was a breakout star because we'd never seen her. She was fresh faced. And, and, I mean, Flashdance is the number three freaking movie. It's the number three freaking movie of 1983. Jennifer Beale was. Beals was the, the face of that. Now, she didn't have the staying power that we're discussing, like a Harrison Ford found, beyond Han Solo, beyond Indiana Jones, with all these different roles that demanded our attention. We show up on, on opening weekend. But boy, oh boy, did Eddie Murphy with Trading Places. Okay, come on. I'm 15 in the summer of 1983. Eddie Murphy... Oh my gosh. Billy Ray, just really one of the funniest turns I had seen. I was watching him as everyone was on SNL for those seasons that he was there, those brief seasons that he was on SNL. I think all totally did 60 plus seasons on SNL, but he was the breakout. You guys, you know, whether it was Gumby, Mr. Rogers, neighborhood, um, James Brown, get in the hot tub. Very, very hot, hot tub. Okay, we all, we all participated in that. We loved Eddie Murphy, but here he is in trading places with John Landis. It makes $90 million. It does not ever chart number one, it does not open at number one. It's never number one during 1983. But it crushes. I mean, it. look at this. It moves past War Games, Octopussy, a James Bond movie, the freaking sequel to Saturday Night Fever, uh, Risky Business, Mr. Mom, National Lampoon's Vacation, down below, like I said, Superman 3, 48 hours. Another James Bond movie that we've got to talk about, never say never again. Uh, it just crushes everything and does not turn back. It is only slightly under um, Flashdance which was just a, a, a monster, like a monster phenomenon. Uh, and again, Star Wars Return of the Jedi, in case you're wondering, made $252 million. Tootsie below it made $170 million. So again, Star Wars um, Return of the Jedi uh, just just absolute, absolutely crushed it. When looking at a chart called The Numbers, uh, the numbers, I, I, I go between this and Box Office Mojo, and you're going to get some inconsistent data. You're going to get the same rankings. But um, Return of the Jedi on the numbers made $250 million, and Tootsie made 136, $136 million. That's just the 1983 gross. The Tootsie movie has the uh, 1982 gross built into it, which is why you get the discrepancy on Box Office Mojo. But again, you, you you look back and you see, I mean, Star Wars, over hundred million dollars above the closest competition. Tootsie, I mean, good God, just kept playing from eighty two, from December seventeenth, eighty two, all the way into eighty three, making one hundred and thirty six million dollars in, in nineteen eighty three. Flashdance made <clears throat> made ninety two million dollars. Trading Places made ninety million dollars on a fifteen million dollar budget. A couple of things about Trading Places you 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 need to know. It was originally written for the comedy team pairing of Richard Pryor and Gene Gene Wilder. They had done a a number of different um, movies together, had been extremely successful together. And and audiences had come to know them together. The reason Richard Pryor doesn't do Trading Places, which is why Billy Ray is a Vietnam vet in the thing, because it was originally supposed to be Pryor. And you can see Pryor, you know, you can see him playing this movie. It's because he burned his face when he was freebasing, co- you know, cocaine, and it was very sad, and 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 it took Richard Pryor out for for years, and so they then run and they offer the same role to Eddie Murphy because of his heat on Saturday Night Live, but he doesn't want to star opposite Gene Wilder because he's like, well, then everyone will know this was supposed to be a Richard Pryor film, and 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 so he was kind of like Gene Wilder and and uh, and Richard Pryor have their own thing that they do. And so, so like, let, let me do, let me do, let me do my own thing. And so, uh, they went and the search was on to, you know, bring in, you know, someone else. And, and of course they ended up getting another, uh, breakout Saturday Night Night Live star in Dan Aykroyd. And, you know, the two of them just absolutely. Lit up the screen. I, I don't think anybody saw this chemistry coming. Jamie Lee Curtis uh, appearing as the hooker with the heart of gold. Uh, it, I mean, literally. Uh, j- just the, the funniest movie. If you've never seen it, you should see it. It's hysterical. It's really like a Prince and the Pauper tale where uh, Eddie Murphy switches roles with Dan Aykroyd. Um, it's a scheme by two, <laughs> two very rich brothers who want to show... That they can take everything special away from Dan Aykroyd if they take his wealth and status away, and that no one will love him anymore, and that they can take someone who is a homeless street person like Eddie Murphy and elevate, give him status, and that everyone will not no longer see uh, his race or 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 his beginnings. They will just immediately welcome him, him into the club simply because, uh, you know, he's he's um, he's rich, and and so it's a hysterical movie with breakout after breakout bit um with with Eddie Murphy again if if only if only he had the budget the time the editing to put those clips into the show but Eddie Murphy he had been in 48 hours just the, the Christmas before but this one takes off makes him an even bigger star did you know that it was in the top 10 trading places with Eddie Murphy breakout role in the top 10 for 17 straight weeks 17 straight weeks you may have seen uh, you may have seen because it really put this pairing on the map. Because when I'm when I'm telling you guys about about Gene Wilder, who you know maybe as Willy Wonka, and Richard Pryor together, the first time I saw them was in Silver Streak. They other other movies that they combined in were Stir Crazy, and then later on they they did See No Evil, Hear No Evil. So again, they were supposed to star in this together, but Eddie, when he was asked to 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 take the role because uh you know because Richard Pryor could no longer do it he didn't want to be just like oh yeah this was supposed to be a Richard Pryor movie Eddie Murphy this is a gigantic star turn star turn for him and from then it just starts cooking from trading places you get Beverly Hills cop from Beverly Hills cop you get um coming to America and literally in that trifecta like he is now the biggest box office star in Hollywood during the 80s everything Eddie Murphy touches is pure gold even movies that have divisive uh maybe polarizing views like the golden child or Harlem Nights um there's no looking back he's he's opening these movies big they may not have the same resonance but that trading places opens the door for everything that follows you like, no Saturday Night Live did yes Saturday Night Live is a great breakout for so many different acts think of all the acts you've liked Think of Chris Kattan. You liked him on Saturday Night Live. He was funny. Did he have a movie career? That was. Did he become a blockbuster name? He did not. Neither did Dana Carvey, who you thought was absolutely queued up. But but when he started moving, appearing in movies, he did not have the same impact. Eddie Murphy goes from Saturday Night Live to number one star in the world. The dude even produces a hit single, "Party All the Time," produced by Rick James. A couple years later, okay. But Trading Places is a giant breakout role for our main man um Mr Mr Eddie Murphy now again you you just have have to glance and you go look you know Matthew Broderick who then goes on a few years later to captivate us uh as Ferris Bueller well he captivates us in the number 5 movie of 1983 in War Games and Matthew Broderick's career again also Never looks back. Never, never pushes pause. This guy, War Games. I mean, he. You, you thought you were watching a teenager in, in, in War Games. You thought you were looking at a at a, a very young actor, and uh, as 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 a result, we watch him. You know, we 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 watch him grow up and become an old man, and uh, and 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 along the way. You know, we've seen so many of his movies. You go, well, Rob, he wasn't a-, a breakout, you know, wasn't he? I mean, Ferris Bueller is a seminal giant cultural phenomenon, and kudos to him for never, like, you know, trying to go back to that well and be Ferris Bueller again. M- maybe for a commercial, or or maybe you know reprising him in some some jokey fashion. But he didn't go back, and he didn't do a dedicated, you know, uh, spinoff. But along the way, after War Games. We see, we see him uh, in Lady Hawk in 1985. He's co anchoring Lady Hawk. He is as important to Lady Hawk as Michelle Pfeiffer. I would say more important than Rutger Hauer. Um, war Games, you know, Lady Hawk, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Project X. Project X is one of the earliest dates I can remember going on with my wife. Um, you know, his, his relationship with the little monkey. She's having a baby. Biloxi Blues. It literally. Uh, is, is just a, a terrific a terrific career you go he's he's not Harrison ford he's not tom cruise well during this period during this 10 year period the, i mean i'm skipping all manner of different of different um credits but if you go on imdb and you start looking he was in glory he's in the freshman he's in out on a limb um he, he he's he's in uh, he's a voice in the lion king you know he's in the cable guy in 1996 Addicted to Love, he's in Godzilla. I mean, he's in Election. We love him in Election, as as a as a giant career. Maybe not blockbuster, but as a giant, as a giant career, he is launched with War Games, which is the number five movie of 1983. And honestly, you know, we then tumble down to risky business, and that's, I mean, Mr. Mom's big hit. Michael Keaton, we all know what happened to Michael Keaton. Gosh, let me think. Did he have a giant career too? Are, are we going to see him maybe in a superhero film in the next few weeks? Yeah, Michael Keaton didn't do so bad for himself. Um, but I'm going to tell you right now, risky business. I mean, you know, I'm going to give Michael Keaton a few more. Okay. Michael Keaton has a stellar career. And it's not just it's not just Batman. But you can't get around the Batman of it all. He is uh, a stellar performer. Coming on the scene as as a comedian, a comedic talent, really. But look at that career, Mr. Mom is is really the the the, the launch pad that connects him with with audiences, gives him blockbuster, you know, top ten grosses that that then allow him to kind of start picking and choosing because that's what they all want. Everybody, we all want our choices. We want to be able to look at different roles. And, and, and make them our own and, 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 and do whatever we want and say, I'd like to try that. I'd like to try a guy battling sobriety, which, you know, he does before his breakout role in Batman. But gung-ho, Johnny Dangerously. I saw gung-ho because that, that's that's now the age, like, um, me and my buddies were going to see movies like the last showing of the night, the 10 o'clock, the 11 o'clock. And, and gung-ho, we just were laughing hysterical and really big heartfelt it was a big movie for michael keaton um he works at a uh a factory that is taken over by the japanese uh uh, a car factory um but again after mr mom because because prior to that you know you can go well what about night shift night shift not even on the same level mr mom boom blockbuster johnny dangerously gung-ho beetlejuice i mean come on beetlejuice freaking beetlejuice they're making a sequel to beetlejuice right now Clean and sober is the sobriety, the drama that, that everyone was pointing to, like he really can be Batman because there was, you guys don't even know, we could do an entire podcast on the backlash, the absolute backlash. Had the internet existed, I'm not sure the studio would have not abandoned Michael Keaton. It was without advent of social media and and the ways to, to spread the vitriol that there is now. Um, I'm not sure. Two, two things I think would have impacted. Michael Keaton does not be does not become Batman and Jim Lee does not join Image Comics if social media is in fact in play during these periods because the uh, outcry of don't do that, don't do that may have been um, enough to sway because Michael Keaton up till opening night was being questioned, why did they put a comedian as Batman? Clean and Sober, The Dream Team, Batman, okay? Pacific Heights, great movie. One Good Cop, another Batman movie, Batman Returns you know, the paper, fantastic movie, multiplicity, a big swing, big swing, didn't quite land it. He's in a Tarantino movie in Jackie Brown. He's in out of sight. Okay. I mean, Michael Keaton really just dances to the beat of his own drum, um, goes into his Disney phase in Herbie, you know, Herbie, uh, fully loaded. And then always again, uh, uh, doing tons of voice work, he's on television on 30 rock and and uh you know birdman was oscar like material like uh, like oscar B- birdman i mean so so then of course dips his toe into the marvel universe as the vulture and is revisiting us again uh you know as as uh, as batman this summer so you guys this is nothing short of phenomenal, the career Michael Keaton had, and and it and and certainly you cannot argue that he did not have a giant blockbuster career that was not defined by Batman. He made way more movies that he wasn't Batman than he was Batman. And I know you guys know this, but again, it is it is worth investigating. Tom Cruise, come on, risky business, puts him on the map. The big the big dance scene, Com- that. that, that charismatic smile that those line reads that delivery just that presence you know then propels him to all manner of giant mega breakout hits he also you know i'm going to tell you right now he's in another movie in 1983 that that's that's just the highest that's just the highest charting movie but uh audiences show up for tom cruise all the right moves was also in 1983 but Risky Business made him a household name. And then, I mean, we just, we don't look back. Whether it's Top Gun, whether it's, you know, Cocktail, and there are people, oh, no Cocktail made him a star. No, Top Gun made him a star. No, pretty certain Risky Business made him a star. He was the breakout. The scripts started hitting his door. And again, he rose to the occasion. We've all seen the breakout star, but can the breakout star follow it up? Is there any doubt in any of our minds? I mean, that early 2000s period is one of my favorites of Tom with Vanilla Sky, with Magnolia, obviously Jerry Maguire. I mean, Jerry Maguire, you know exactly who Jerry Maguire is. The minute we say it, it's not an IP. It's not an action figure. It doesn't have a video game. It's just a movie. It's Jerry Maguire. It's Tom Cruise. And you know it and you know lines from it. You can recite them all day long. Massive mega movie star Magnolia, um, Vanilla Sky you know, in between, obviously, Mission Impossible in 1996, then the 2000, the sequel, and then now we just live in a Mission Impossible world. And, and and Mission Impossible, for me, is the biggest movie of this year that I'm waiting for. Following last year's the biggest movie with Top Gun Maverick. Uh, the guy just was built to last, durable as hell, and launched in 19, 1983. These film careers are incredible. These movies are incredible. We're going to circle back In part two of 1983 and do a little more examination of this amazing list of movies but the purpose for it right now in 1983 was to shock your system by awakening you to like look at all the stars that were truly born that had their breakout hit that's the key to breakout hit the one that cleared the path for them to do whatever they wanted eddie murphy Anything you want. Michael Keaton, anything you want. Tom Cruise, anything you wants. Boom, boom, boom. The scripts start coming. That connection with that audience is there. And when I say anything they want, I'm talking now they have choices. Look, <clears throat> I was fortunate enough to sell a movie. I've done the entire podcast on this. Uh early on in season one of our observations. I uh it actually has a Tom Cruise component to it since he had it first, but this is gonna I'm getting to the the dilemma that I um, experienced because this is at the the really the birth of this this star's giant run that he was about to go on, and his name's Will Smith. You know him. I, I sold a movie with him the summer of night. I'm sorry, the Halloween Halloween weekend, 1997. We sell a movie. It's called The Mark. We go to all the studio bosses. I take you on this journey in this dedicated episode. I think it's called Going Hollywood. I'm not sure what what, what I named it back then, but go back, look. It's got Will Smith. It's got The Mark. Those are the Stuff to look look for in the in the in the uh, in the categories, and uh the reason I mention this is because so many people tell me that they go back through the old episodes and they listen to them. So I, I just try and you know give you a connective uh component to what we're talking about while I'm discussing you know this current topic and tell you where to look. But <clears throat> Will Smith had been, you know, this is now the men, in, the the fall that 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 is after Men in, Men in Black. Men in Black is 1997. The year before is is Independence Day and the year before that was Bad Boys. And so he's had his trifecta where now Hollywood believes he can do anything. And when we sold the mark and when we set it up and we started the production going on it, my my good buddy said, Rob, you got to understand, it's not going to be as easy to make the mark as you think. Tom, excuse me, Will Smith is getting 10 scripts a day delivered to him via messenger with offers, with offers. You know, so here's this script and a $10 million offer, a $15 million offer, a $20 million offer to star in it. So he is getting overwhelmed with offers and you're going to have to, and it's going to be good material. And even though he took this out and he wanted to make this with you, there are going to be, those offers are going to have significant producers, significant directors and co-stars. They're ready to go. They're ready to shoot right now. And I'm like, wow. Like, you know, this is what you're up against. And sure enough, look, I mean, uh, Will takes off in the early two thousands and never looks back. And that's what I'm talking about with Michael Keaton and Matthew Broderick and Tom Cruise and Eddie Murphy. The scripts started hitting their doors. The the, you know, messengers were knocking on that door. Could you sign for this boom? Here's a script. It's got an offer. Here's ten million, here's five million, whatever it was, the big going rate in nineteen eighty-three to lure these guys to, to to star in these new movies. And these guys chose correctly to borrow an Indiana Jones you know, uh, uh, Monica, he chose, they chose correctly, giant breakout hits. In the world of comic books and and giant breakout stars, in the world of comic books, 1983 would give us two massive, gigantic, monster size hits that really define 1983 for comics. I don't think anything was bigger than these two. I'm going to start with the unexpected. A book that was kind of on cruise control for years after reaching its 300th issue is, is Thor. I was there in 79 as this giant culmination of this Eternals-themed, yes, Thor kind of teamed with the with the Eternals and the Celestials, and they kind of crashed into his mythology. It was Roy Thomas. It was Keith Pollard. It's this great year-long saga because it was all about gods battling gods. It was beautifully illustrated, great, really Amazing storytelling, great, impactful stuff. And right after there, Thor just goes into kind of just a vegetable a vegetable state as a comic book. People came and went. Uh, teams, you know, tried out. They hung around. They contributed. But especially the year 1982-83 leading up to this was just a, you know, turntable of artists, of filling in issues. Uh, there was a writer named Alan Zelentes who had been writing Thor leading up to this monumental occasion but Thor had been eclipsed in the fans minds by the obvious choices that we discuss here all the time which are uh, X-Men and uh an Iron Man which was really slick uh produced by David Michelinie and, and John Romita Jr. and inked by Bob Layton and it was like the apex of Iron Man's you know existence breakout broke Iron Man out, the the biggest kind of comic book success story he had prior to becoming the biggest success story of all time with Robert Downey Jr. in a live action role. Frank Miller's Daredevil had run its course. By 83, he is exiting the book. He is no longer even doing layouts for Klaus Jansen during that period where they would, you know, continue with Frank doing stories and breakdowns, moving away from full pencils. But he's moving off. But X-Men, Daredevil, Iron Man, The Avengers, Fantasy Four, all the 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 you know the Familiar hits had really taken over. Captain America had a great run with Mike Zek drawing it. Uh, John Byrne before that, like powerhouse talent. Your eyeballs demanded that you check these books out. Thor was falling by the wayside. Go back, look at that year leading up to different cover artists, different artists. It's Don Perlin one month, it's Bob Hall the next. It's It's just there's a lot of inconsistency. The stories aren't sticking. There's no juice with the character that summer july 1983 the big poster the big poster that, that 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 marvel had behind behind their table was the cover of the comic book that would change everything for thor the cover that would start the run that would rival to this day i have a hard time picking is it kirby or is it or is it this and uh you just stared at it because it's this giant alien creature and they wouldn't tell you anything about it. They wouldn't even so much as tell you the name. They wouldn't tell you like, oh yeah, that's, you're just like, what's that big creature smashing the Thor logo, you know, holding Thor's hammer. Thor 337 as advertised heavily by Marvel as promoted as their big kind of centerpiece the summer of 1983 in San Diego Comic-Con when it was at the Smaller, like now Civic Center. <clears throat> it it featured a cover by Walt Simonson, the character we would come to know as Bader Ray Bill. And it marked the debut of Walt Simonson's breakout uh commercial success. Walt had been around. He had been doing Star Wars comics, he had been doing Battlestar Galactic comics, he was big on the licensing uh you know circuit because he had done 1979's alien uh graphic novel. Uh, adapted the whole movie uh, uh, again if you ever get a chance to check that out your eyes will melt it's so beautiful uh over at dc had done hercules i've done an entire you know podcast on on walt simonson's hercules the existence of hercules at dc comics as its own kind of you know potential franchise they tried to launch walt simonson had done the metal man he had done hercules he had done covers he had done Doctor Fate. I mean, these are not like breakout roles. And when he gets gets to Marvel and he does Star Wars and battles for Galactica, they're better selling, you know, they're higher, higher, you know, profile, but he hasn't really done anything. He's done some X-Men fill-in issues. He's done, you know, a couple of jobs here and there that you go, man, why don't they have this guy on something regular? I did an entire episode about, uh, he adapted a, a, a Stephen King short story called The Lawnmower Man, very different than the movie version of The Lawnmower Man. Walt worked. He worked all the time. People wanted to work with him. His his, his style was very distinct. Uh, a lot of a uh, of a very popular artist named Topi T O P P I Sergio Topi. Uh, uh, check him out. You'll dig it. Um, you, you'll see a lot of the you know tendrils of what what really began uh, as 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 Walt's possibly his biggest uh, his biggest. <clears throat> His biggest influence but he comes on he comes on to thor and does a career defining work for not only himself but the character i i i really struggle like to put the Kirby stuff above the thor stuff it has the edge because it's where all these characters were born the crazy headdresses the the armor the the costume design the set design of asgard of asgardians of odin of 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 you know, Lady Sif, the Warriors 3, Fandral, Hogan, all of it. But but Thor under Walt Simonson was like X-Men under Burn Austin. It was next level stuff. It has truly never been equaled. No one has done a run anywhere like this since he stays on Thor for years. It's like nearly a four-year run. But when it hits, and the reason it gets people buzzing, it goes way beyond the art and the in the drawing of of Walt Simonson because he is writing this and he crafts a tale in one episode that has you yelling i was yelling at the last page he separates donald blake who a lot of you guys cuz the cuz the the movies don't you know the movies of the last you know 20 years that whatever 20 2010 so the, the movies of the last 13 years with thor in them with chris hemsworth don't really uh play with donald blake but the thor that we grew up with had like a almost Shazam existence a mortal man named donald blake was was whose thor who thor's you know power and spirit inhabited and when he would be in a bind he would summon thor by you know he he was he had a limp he had a lame leg and he would smash his his cane and the cane would become the hammer and he would transform into thor well this this was the beginning of the end for that Walt Simonson separates Don Blake and Thor, separates uh, Thor from the hammer for the first time. When this little alien that is stranded comes across the hammer that we have all known in Marvel lore, it was known that not even the Hulk could pick up the the, the hammer and wield it. You had to be worthy. It wasn't an object that, that, that you could lift because you were strong. A machine couldn't lift it. You had to be worthy. This little alien, this little orange alien like a skinny little Pac-Man, picks up the the hammer and is transformed. He is transformed. And he becomes this giant, like hulking version of Thor with this kind of horse head. And we know him because the alien is Beta Ray Bill. Beta Ray Bill now has the hammer and he's a badass. And he can kick all sorts of ass. And in the second issue, Donald Blake, Thor without his hammer, pleads his case. To the High Father, to Odin, and says, "Set up, set up a sequence. This is a mistake for me to win this back." And you think this is going to get solved right now, and then Walt turns it on its head even further. Thor loses the match, and and he's for sure now not getting the Thor. I mean, not getting the hammer. He is for sure not getting his hammer back. But the end of that first issue, he is standing on top of the heli carrier, Shield heli carrier, where, where, where Nick. Nick Fury is residing below and there is a storm and in the, in the wind and the rain is whipping and you can feel it on Donald Blake's face as he outstretches his, his hands in a gesture that you go, he can't outstretch them any further. This guy is fully, you know, attempting to touch the sky. He screams out, father, like, how can you abandon me? He's, it's like, you know, Jesus crying out for, for God on the cross, um, he is abandoned in that in that moment. That issue was electric. Marvel did a great job of guarding it. It just lit up the rest of the summer. Did you know you got two? You got 337 and 338 in the same month. August double-shipped Thor. You got it the first week of August. You got it the last week. Okay, that's how, I don't know if that's by design or where the holidays fell, but you got two of these riveting, riveting Thor adventures to kick off the Walt Simonson era. Walt introduces a, a, a incredibly new portrait of Lorelei and, and new versions of Loki and Lady Sif and, and the Warriors Three. Along the way, he he, he summons Ragnarok. Um, you, you get Malekith, who you saw in the second Thor movie. Uh, but along the way, it's Walt's contribution to this lore that Thor could lose his hammer and this extremely formidable... Kind-hearted, noble, noble soul. It's hard to not like Beta Ray Bill because the reason that he could get the hammer, he the reason he could get the hammer in the first place, was because of his nobility and his his trueness of heart. Now I'm not going to tell you how it ends. You need to go seek that out yourself. Maybe you're hearing about this for the first time. You will look at artwork and wonder, is this being drawn today? Walt has always had an edge, a modern edge in whatever area he's at. His work looks ahead of the curve. It looks more slick, more. Um, stylized than you could possibly imagine in the moment. Um, He's an incredible draftsman, incredible illustrator. But his writing and the stories and the concepts, think about that. He obviously went in, pitched, hey, I want to, you know, have an alien, an unsuspecting, slightly goofy, completely unintimidating, friendly-faced alien pick up the hammer, be transformed into this incredible armored version of Thor as an alien named Beta Ray Bill. We've all been waiting for Beta Ray Bill to crash the MCU. At this point, I'm like, yeah, I've seen the nods to him. I'm like, maybe maybe we don't want maybe after High Evolutionary and maybe after Modoc, we don't we maybe we're just better off enjoying uh the Thor that we got, the Beta Ray Bill that we got in comics, and just leave it at that. I've I've got cool toys. I got cool toys of Beta Ray Bill. They're cool to look at. Um but Walt Simonson on Thor kicks off and Thor becomes one of their top sellers, really filling the void left behind by Frank Miller's Daredevil. Not at all the same, but solo character, solo Marvel character that was kind of in trouble, that was being neglected, that was getting fill-in issues, that that, that really struggled to find a pulse, now becomes this electric comic that is on your first pull list that you've got to get each and every time you go. Lasts for years. Killer. Killer. I'm buying... Walt Simonson's Thor books when I'm driving that hour each way, you know, to get them when I'm in Illinois for the summer when my dad uh, has his second brain surgery and I have to go be with him that I covered in the 1985 decades episode. I'm still buying Thor's then. He does not abandon Thor. He sticks with Thor. Walt Simonson, uh, Thor is his most definitive work. And uh, it defined him, and it defined the character, and there has not been a run more superior to this. This is the thing about this era of comics. Daredevil's Miller, Miller's Daredevil has yet to be surpassed. The Burn Austin X-Men has yet to be surpassed. <clears throat> but it came close. Thor's, we'll get to that in a minute. Thor's, Thor by Walt Simonson is the greatest run of Thor. There, I said it. It's the greatest run of Thor. There have been other good writings. There's been other decent artists. But not in one package, not like this, not every, not every month, and not in a way that it would shock you. And I've seen some of the other ways that they've shocked you. Hey, we're going to change sexes on some of the characters, and and ch-. they're trying to beta ray bill you, but they can't because beta ray bill can only really really be pulled off once. And they did it, and this is it, and it's magnificent, it's fantastic, it's electric. Check it out. It defined 1983. It is the big move is the big move by Marvel in 1983. The other thing, the other uh, of of a couple things, and we're going to revisit more in the next part of our 1983 decade series because this is going long this is going to two parts but the second thing cuz there's more more to come we're going to we're going to talk about what was marvel's number 1 book for years their number 1 launch we're going to do that in the second part when we come back and revisit 1983 but the second big deal for marvel was the arrival of a gentleman named Paul Smith I've covered it before but I want to do it again cuz this is the year that, that he didn't he arrived late 82 and then does nine gives us there's a double-sized issue in there so i'm going to count that as nine issues worth of x-men comics he's an animator his name's paul smith chris claremont stays on but as i've mentioned very very often when chris gets a new toy an artist that really interests them that he's really turned on by the stories elevate they get an even even better i went to an la comic book show at the biltmore um uh uh hotel that is no longer there but there used to be a monthly comic book show at the in the middle of this run in the fall of this run where where, where paul smith is, is about to leave so so we are in the full throes of paul smith he's an animator he worked with ralph Bakshi. he did he worked on fire and ice lord of the rings he brings this animation sensibility this drawing style that we've never seen before the movements the characters the like just the characteristics of each and every one of your favorite x-men were very unique he did a great scott great cyclops one of the best wolverines ever and he and chris go on a tear they only tell one year's worth of stories it's the morlocks it's Callista. it's it's uh the sequel to the frank miller chris claremont wolverine they give you the two issue follow-up to where that left us it is Pulse-pounding, excitement, it is crisp, it is clean, it is storytelling that moves like animation, that moves like film. The one thing that he had very much in common with Frank Miller, nothing in, in regards to their finishes. Paul was very, very crisp and clean and open, and again, very animated. Frank was gritty, you know, harsher lines, hard rendering, virtually no rendering whatsoever on Paul Smith. Just these incredible... Drawings of these characters. I would go to the shows that he was at, including this Biltmore convention with Chris, where Chris is just gushing and gushing. And Paul's telling us, "I'm leaving. I'm going on a motorbike ro- uh, uh, ride around the world." Uh, royalties had just kicked in. Royalties had become a thing. So, you know, the X-Men book was the one that was paying people the most. So he was taking his years worth of uh, of earnings, and he was leaving. But while he was with us, again, we revisit uh, Dark Phoenix. There's Madeline Pryor. There's, there's Mastermind, there's The Brood, there's The Morlocks, there's Silver Samurai, The Viper, the sequel to uh, to the Wolverine miniseries, and Paul Smith is as good as they get. Had, we mourned. We mourned when he left in the fall of 1993. I'm sorry, then 1983, we mourned as fans collectively, but he was the buzz of the comic store the entire year, who was this fresh jolt of energy. He went on and did Doctor Strange as well. Anything Paul Smith would have done would have electrified us. I would have loved to have seen him. I was hoping he would do something with the Avengers. Restore them to like their previous greatness of the, of the late 70s with Byrne and Perez. But I am so fortunate. We got one year's worth of fantastic Paul Smith art. And he dominated the, convent, the, the, the convention scene. He dominated the comic store scene where you got your comics and you buzzed and you couldn't believe. Because the excitement when you get a new artist is, well, how are they going to draw this? And then you see, oh, this is how his Silver Samurai looks like. This is what his Viper looks like. This is what his Mastermind looks like. Ooh, he's drawing Dark Phoenix. Yeah, splash page reveal. um You know, we had seen the Brood depicted by Dave Cockrum, and we liked them, but we loved them as they were depicted by Paul Smith. Paul Smith, Walt Simonson, X Men, Thor, really, mostly Thor, dominated the scene. Just dominated the comic book scene of 1983 we are going to put a we are going to put a pin in it we're going to put a pin right here before we return for our next installment we're going to wrap a little more on the movies we're going to wrap a little more on the comics but we're going to get into the music again and the television but there's a lot to cover with comics there's still a lot more to cover with comics um superheroes comic books pop culture this is what i'm all about Walt Simonson's Thor is, uh, I've got it in every iteration it, that, 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 original story with Beta Ray Bill is called the Ballad of Beta Ray Bill. They've done so many trade paperback reprints of it. I bought them all. They've done an omnibus of the entire run of Walt Simonson, a giant double-sized phone book, hardcover, have fun putting that in your lap and turning those pages. Um, phenomenal, just stellar. This was the absolute, uh, magnum opus apex mountain of 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 uh of walt simonson's career and it's the best run of thor you're ever going to engage with so an x-men for my money is the second best run this paul smith year after john byrne terry austin the people who were there and experienced it they 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 view the same then you can start wedging your jim lee's and whoever you want in there but i'm gonna tell you right now this is jim lee's two favorites are john byrne and paul smith okay for a reason so hey thank you as always for listening to this show when whenever you guys tune in and 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 share um your passion for for the show it it is tremendously humbling and it is in, is incredibly inspiring i read your reviews at the end of the show and when we get to the end of the show that's what I'm gonna do but we're not quite there yet i need to let you know I have a book it's coming out June 7th I've been working on it <clears throat> for a little time here, for a minute, it's called Deadpool Bad Blood. It is the sequel to the best-selling, number one charting Deadpool Bad Blood. It bring brings back all manner of faces and characters from Deadpool Bad Blood, but we build it out now. We brought C- Cable, we brought Wolverine, we've brought lots of more interesting characters and faces that I don't want to blow yet. But is there in the first issue uh, a, a, a new uh, a new character I want you to get to know named Shatter Storm? When the book comes out, I'll tell you why I decided to introduce Shatterstorm. Shatterstorm is not a female version of Shatterstar. This is not a gender swap. Shatterstorm is is her own character. It is her unique, her own unique uh, uh, individual uh, person. She's her own person. Look, Shatterstar was born in the gladiator rings. It would make sense that there was more than, than one gladiator in those pits and Shatterstorm is one of them. And you'll find all all about her. She is in the debut issue of Deadpool. Batter blood. It comes out June 7th. I implore you to get it. Get there early. It's going to sell out. Thank you for supporting my work for all these many years. Don't miss out on getting Deadpool. Batter blood when it launches June 7th. There's five issues that, that they're coming at you all summer long. Issue four. uh The September issue is what I am wrapping now. And then October. And then we're done. But you've got Marvel has one, two, three, half of four. It's so exciting. I can't wait for you guys to, to check out Deadpool Batterblood launching June 7th. I am then doing a signing. I'll be in person for the first time in over a year, and it is my only personal signing on the calendar for 2023 at Tustin Tunes and Toys in Tustin, California. Comics TNT is another uh, word for Tustin Tunes and Toys. Uh, look it up. We want to see you there. If you... Buy a Deadpool Batterblood from Tustin Tunes and Toys. I will sign it free on June 10th, Saturday, June 10th. I'll be there at noon, and I cannot wait to see you. I want to give you a free signed copy of my latest work, and that is where you're going to get it. Check with uh, TNT. They've got a menu. If you want to bring me other stuff to sign, a Funko Pop, uh, another comic from your collection, feel free to do so. That is my only public appearance of the year, can't wait to see uh, uh uh see you. Tustin Tunes and Toys is the first and only comic store I worked at. So, so this is actually you're going to be, you know, at, at the at the franchise that 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 I drew my first public work, Boris the Bear, on a backing board, sent it into Dark Horse Comics, and then lo and behold, as I'm unpacking Boris the Bear a couple months later in the comic store, they've printed my Boris the Bear. There's there's a comic. Google it, Boris the Bear. I did a up in it. I drew it when I was clerking at Tustin Tunes and Toys. I cannot wait to get back there. I cannot wait to see you. You guys also, right now, CGC. CGC is the number one grading company in the entire world. That's where you want your slabs, your your comic book encapsulated with a with a great grade, a nine, eight. That's what we're all shooting for. I am doing a first ever, first ever. So many, I've watched so many talents do umpteen signings. This is my first one. They've given me a special Liefeld label. You should order that you should go on the CGC website right now, look up the Rob Liefeld News, Rob Liefeld signing news, follow that menu, start sending your books into me. I'm signing there at the end of the summer. They're going to receive books from you all the way through July. They're special menu items. Most of them are signed, are um are sold out. Sketches, busts, uh what I call my chisel logo. We added another, you know, menu item for the chisel logo. I only am doing it at this signing for you in this way for it to be graded. Send me your key books, whatever you dig, my, my, my first work, Hawk and Dove, um, random really out there covers like Checkmate or the Titans that I did. I mean, again, people want to, want to send in very unique items. I encourage that. I can't wait to see it because I'm going to see a lot of New Mutants 98s and New Mutants 87s. I hope your books are in there. I'm going to see a lot of Young Bloods. I hope yours are in there. Send them to CGC. Get your books in. I'll be signing at the end of the summer. Cannot wait to fly to the CGC location. Do my first in-person uh, private signing there. I want your books to be a part of it. Go to CGC, look at, look up the Rob Liefeld news and get to that menu and and, and get your books in sooner than later. That Deadpool 3 set photo is gonna leak is gonna leak. You're gonna see it and you're gonna be like, why didn't I act later? I, I mean <laughs> why didn't I act sooner? Why did I wait so long? I need to get my stuff in right now. Do it while you can before the hype goes into overdrive. Now here's the deal on social media I'm just gonna wrap this up by telling you on social media I am at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. At Robert Liefeld. No longer part of the Blue Check Brigade. That vanished in the purge, but I am still there. I still want to talk to you, interact with you. Um, You're going to find links to this show there. Uh, This is the most um, probably conversational I am is on Twitter. So please uh, check me out at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. I look forward to seeing you there. On Instagram, I post... What I'm drawing, Deadpool batter blood pages are making their way into the feed all the time. Old stuff that I find in the drawers, what I'm eating, where I'm going to dinner with my family, with my wife, where we're traveling. Um, it, it, it's it's a crazy account. It's, it's you know, not curated professionally whatsoever, but I am Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I encourage you to follow me, Rob Liefeld. That does have the blue check that denotes that you are with the real deal. I am, uh, it, it, it tells you that I am, uh, you know, verified. I am me. So I am just Rob Liefeld, no Robert Liefeld, just Rob Liefeld with the blue check over on Instagram. Look forward to seeing you there on Facebook, over at Facebook. I have a group I would love for you to join. We continue so many of the conversations that we have here. We continue there. Facebook, it's called Rob Liefeld. It's a group, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Get on over there. Continue so many of these conversations. We have art contests. People are dropping art, sharing their comics all the time. I hope to see you there. Either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, will click you through. Um, We are your administrators at Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. That's the group. You should join it. Get over there. Um, We're adding an avalanche every day. The group is young. We want you to be um, over there with us. We reignited it with this podcast and it is... Really exciting and again, look forward to speaking with you um, more in depth at Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond on Facebook. Last but not least is the most kick-ass collectible app, WhatNot, is where you're going to get a million rooms of a million comic book dealers, manga dealers, anime dealers, Funko Pop dealers, toys, all sorts of collectibles are are at your fingertips once you get the WhatNot app and you sign up. And you're going to follow me, Rob Liefeld, because I go live twice a week. On my live streams, I have exclusive comic books, variants. I do custom signatures on Funko Pops, on toys, original art. Uh, we have so many different variants we've done with Whatnot. We've done uh, Brigade, uh, number one, Whatnot ex- exclusive. We've done a Spider-Man, Maisie Spider-Man, Marvel, Whatnot exclusive. We've done a Deadpool New Mutants exclusive. We've got Deadpool Batter Blood exclusives coming only to Whatnot. Six covers total. I've done three with Whatnot and three with a, uh, a retailer, a beautiful man. I've, I've done the show with him many times, Stash Loot. Do not miss out on those. Those will be available the week that Deadpool Batter Blood ships. But in the meantime, you should check out my shows. You'll find out what a blood splatter Liefeld chisel is, a drop shadow chisel. Get one of those cool remarks I draw on Funko Pops. Um, I am talking right at you into the camera, the entirety of my live streams. Join with me. Follow me, Rob Liefeld. Hit me up at Whatnot. When you're not hitting me up, again, go get some sports gear, some some Yu-Gi-Oh, some Pokemon, some uh, some other role-playing games, get trading cards, get comic books, modern age, bronze age, classics, keys, all of it. It's all available for you at Whatnot. Follow me there at Rob Liefeld. Everybody, you know how I am at the end of the show. I get very sentimental. I want you to do well. I hope you had the very best whatever day you just had or are having. I hope it's great. I hope it's filled with love and community. And I hope there was a great meal involved. I hope it it was a hamburger, a pizza, some gourmet pasta, some fish dish. I love fish. I never mentioned salmon or or any of the white fishes or all the, the crazy seafood that I love. My kids are all into the sushi. They they love they're they're the sushi generation. They they love all that stuff. You guys, get a meal, get a friend, get a comic book, get a movie, kick back, escape the grind, relax, let the brain be inspired by art and food. That's all, I'm, that's all I'm telling you right now. Did, did you think I was going to get out of here without mentioning a Reese's peanut butter big cup is the magic button that will turn every day around? Okay, no, I'm not doing advertising. I'm not, I'm not a paid supporter, sponsor for the big cup, but good God almighty, are they the best? I think so. Anyway, I hope that your emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual self are being fed. I hope that you're doing well. I'm rooting for you. Fish bump, boom, through the mic wishing you all the best. Please come back and see me next time. I'll be here waiting. We will most inevitably, most absolutely, and most certainly talk again real soon.